Before I begin, I'd like to just dedicate this shear. This shear should be a blessing and a merit for the health and success of the families of Regina Bas Yosef Ruvain and Yeshaya Ben Yisrael, Benjamin Wolf, Ben Tzvi Hersh, and Baruch Ben Benjamin Wolf. She uh, should be from Elias Neshama of all these people. Okay. Uh, tonight is Tuesday night, and uh, Hanukkah is Thursday. Uh, so Thursday night. So I, I, it's very hard to you know to go by, and just avoid uh, a major holiday, Hanukkah, without saying you know very very important and appropriate words. Especially my uh, derech, uh, my uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, method is to speak about a holiday, a yom tov, whatever, in the terms of its depth. So you really have a handle on what is going on. So what I'd like to do. <clears throat> Uh, is talk about Hanukkah, but really in terms of its depth, which is very, very important, and so on, as we will see. Um, the problem is that, which is unfortunate, and there's a reason for this, is most people, <clears throat> you know, they look at a holiday, a Yom Tov, uh, in a very superficial way. Cause, so basically, every Yom Tov is connected to or attached to some type of historical event, you see. And that's what they know. There's a historical event, so they try to derive some of the major characteristic of that historical event. And that's where they try to understand a holiday. And obviously the halachas or the mitzvahs of that holiday, right, uh, emanates from that historical event. And that's it. That's what they have. So... That's and that's valid. That's that's okay. You know, I don't mean in any way to demean that approach. But let's face it; it's really superficial. Uh, you know, we hope and we expect Judaism to have a much greater understanding, much greater, I should say, uh, explanation of what a holiday really is. You see, uh, and that will contribute and add to the beauty and the depth of Judaism. So therefore, since Hanukkah is in two days, uh, I'd like to do that for Hanukkah. I think it's very important. Especially since when you look at the real depth of Hanukkah, it contains tremendous amount of uh, very profound concepts that in many ways are at the basis or the foundation of uh, Judaism. So that's what I'd like to do. So let's begin. Uh, I'd like to ask a, cu- a couple of questions, you know, just to dramatize, so to speak, uh, what we really have to understand about Hanukkah. So the first question is the essence of Hanukkah. What exactly is the essence of Hanukkah? You see, now we know the historical event associated with Hanukkah. We know it was all about, it took place in about what the historians consider 165 BCE. And we know what it was about, basically, <clears throat> that uh, Alexander the Great, 
Uh, he conquered basically the entire known world. And uh, then he was uh, 33 years old. This was in 333 BCE. And after he conquered the entire world, he died. And he was only 33 years old. <clears throat> Could you imagine what that is? Somebody conquers the entire world at 33 years old. Obviously, he was an extraordinary uh, tactician, strategist, and so on, you know. But anyway, he dies. And after he dies, uh, there are four generals that took over his empire. I mean, his empire stretched from Greece, whatever, Macedonia, whatever, all the way to India. You imagine how far that is? Uh, so the four generals, there was one who took over the Middle East, Judea, and Syria, you know, that whole Middle Eastern territory. Then was, there was one who took over Egypt, and so on. The one who took over the Middle East was, his name we know is Antiochus, Epiphanes, and he took it over. <clears throat> now one of the unusual things about uh, Alexander, and this has enormous historical uh, ideas and so on, is that the, the Greeks had a certain way of living, they had a certain belief system, you see. Uh, and what they did is, that's called Hellenism, or the beliefs of Greece. And they were very, in those days, certainly considered modern. And what they did is they spread that Hellenistic view wherever they went. Historians considered them to be really the uh, forerunners of the modern era. They're the ones who, uh, you know, in, in a certain sense, left the uh, ancient beliefs and so on and introduced the beginning of modern civilization. So as, as such, they considered Alexander one of the movers and shakers of world history, which is interesting. We know as such, <clears throat> when they took over Judea, Antiochus, that he wanted to try to Hellenize uh, Israel, Judea. That was uh, what they believed in. That's what they wanted to do. You see, remember, they didn't want to kill the Jews. It, we're not talking here about anti-Semitism, really. We are talking about trying to compel the people of Israel, the Jewish people, uh, to adapt the Hellenistic beliefs. You see, <clears throat> and their beliefs were very modern. They excelled, you know, in art, in poetry, architecture, plays, literature, and so on, <clears throat> science, logic, thinking, and so on. They excelled in that. And that, of course, is at the bedrock of civilization. But they excelled in that. And he wanted to compel Judea, Israel, really just the way he did everybody, these Hellenistic ideas. And in many ways, they run contrary to the Jewish religion, you see. Uh, because in many ways, the, what the Greeks held is that the basis of all phenomena is really uh, the physical world. That's the basis. Science, logic, philosophy, and so on. And they excelled in that, you see. They don't really believe in the, the, the concept of spirituality or that there's another world beyond the physical, a <coughs> metaphysical world. They don't really believe in that. Uh, so obviously, just uh, what's called ostensibly, 
this difference from Judaism. And the one who, and, and obviously there was a people in Judaism, specifically Matisioi Kohen Godel and his seven sons, that fought this because this was a real threat, Judaism. So there ensued a tremendous battle between them, and they were called the Hashmanoim, and, and the Greeks, you see. <clears throat> and uh, this war went on for many years. This was not, you know, in a, just a month or two and so on, you know. But ultimately, <clears throat> the Jewish uh, soldiers under, under uh, the Matisio, Koen Godel and so on, they prevailed. They won, you see. So that's the first significant aspect of this event, is they won a battle under tremendous odds against them. Uh, the historians estimate maybe there was 10,000 Jewish soldiers, guerrillas, whatever, you know. But how many Greeks were there? Over 125,000 Greek soldiers. And you have to remember, these Greek soldiers were battle-hardened. They had just come back, you know, in many ways from conquering the countries and so on. So we're looking at a very trained army. So the Jews won, which itself is a ness. It's a miracle that these people won a war against a tremendous adversary. <clears throat> then, of course, they finally they took back the temple, which had been tremendously contaminated, and they found, we know, a vial of oil that was supposed to burn, basically, only one day. But they lit it anyway, because, and it would take eight days for them to get new oil, you see. <clears throat> pure oil. So they lit the oil and we know it burnt for, right, eight days, which is incredible. You know, and that was the, that's the Ness, the miracle of Hanukkah. Uh, and therefore we commemorate that by lighting a candle, you know, one day we add, uh, you know, one day is, first day is one candle, second day is a second candle, three candles, four candles, and so on. So we commemorate that. <clears throat> okay. So basically, that is what people look at as the essence of Hanukkah. It is a battle, right, of belief systems. It's really what it is. And the idea is that, you know, the Jews won. But what, the way we commemorate is very interesting, right? And that is through lighting can, lighting the menorah, and so on, you know. So this is what seems to be the essence of Hanukkah. <clears throat> but we can ask a question. Really think about that. <clears throat> the miracle of the menorah happened after the battle, a long time after the battle. And not only that, the real question is, uh, why do we celebrate Hanukkah? Because the essential concept of Hanukkah is the battle between the Jews and the Greeks. It's not the menorah. Okay, there was a miracle, obviously. But why do we commemorate Hanukkah with the lighting of the menorah? Because that has nothing to do with the theme. The theme is the battle of the belief system. What does that have to do with the menorah? You see? That's a very powerful question. Yet Chazal made this the centerpiece of Hanukkah. So the question is why? You see? I mean, I'm not in any way minimizing the miracle. 
But, you know, when you celebrate something, you know, you celebrate with an essential idea. You see, like Pesach with matzah. You know, they had to leave so quickly, they couldn't let the dough rise into bread, so they left with matzahs. Okay, so that does commemorate the exodus, because they had to exit with such speed and rapidity that they couldn't bake it. Okay, I understand that. But really, what is the menorah? It's a, it is a rededication of the temple, that's true. But that has nothing to do with the real theme, significance of Hanukkah. So that's the question. Uh, the second thing is, listen, you know, we are in exile for 2,000 years. It's a long time. The Jews have been persecuted for 2,000 years. And we have been saved many times. So then why make Hanukkah one of the days that we commemorate? I mean, they make every time Jews are saved, you see, into a, a national holiday. <clears throat> so, how do, so the question is, how do the rabbis know when to make uh, a holiday? Especially Hanukkah, which is, uh, you know, obligated for all Jews through all time and so on. What did they know, the rabbis, the chazal, that we need to learn, you see? And what I want to show in this year is that we don't really know what Hanukkah is, surprisingly enough. And that they were right. They understood what Hanukkah really is, you see? And that's very important for us to grasp that, those ideas. So that's what I'm going to do. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> how do you figure this out? So we have to look. It's like anything else. It's like a mystery. How do you figure out what the real theme, the real meaning is of any Jewish holiday? You see, especially Hanukkah. Because like I say, basically it's a battle, uneven battle, but we won. Is that the theme? Say yes. But then why don't we celebrate the battle? You know, or whatever. So we have to look for a, an event that in some way within it lies the real answer to what we really commemorate. You see, so where do we look for that? Oh, so thank God there's a medrash. Okay, what is that medrash? <clears throat> Aaron Akoyan. Aaron, the high priest, right? Okay, so he was one of the pe people responsible for contributing to the golden calf because they came over to him and they said, we want you to build a golden calf to worship. And the Cheto Egel, he was responsible for, and so on. So what happened was that the dedication of the temple, not the temple, the Mishkan, right? Then you had the 12 chiefs of the tribes. Each one brought a korban, a sacrifice, an offering, right, as a representative of his tribe. But Aaron, right, was not asked to bring a korban. So it says that he had a tremendous chalisha. A chalisha means, uh, it's like you can faint. He had a tremendous weakness, uh, or faintness, if you want to use that word, you know, uh, because he thought that maybe the reason why he was not asked to bring a korban, an offering, was because he contributed to the sin of the golden calf, right? And as a result of that, God did not forgive him. So if he sinned in a way that God does not forgive, maybe that's why he's not supposed to bring an offering. 
So you had this tremendous, it's hard to call it guilt or worry, uh, but but there's no question that it's a tremendously uh, uh, unsure of himself kind of feeling, especially if you feel that God does not forgive you, and so on. So what happened was, as Rabbi Hashem told him, in Baha'u'llah Saneris, right, in that parasha, you have to light the candles. The menorah. We know that in the temple there was a menorah, right? And he was commanded to light it every day. You had to light the menorah and so on, right? You had to prepare it, and then you had to light it and so on. Uh, so God told him that you should know, you know you're, you're, you're worried about the fact that you didn't bring a korban, but I tell you that your avoido, your service of lighting the menorah every day in the Mishkan and ultimately in the temple will tremendously supersede all the other korbanas that were brought by the other Nisim, the uh, chiefs and so on. Uh, that's what he told them. So in, in a certain sense he was appeasing him you see, that don't worry, not only will you have a Avoida of the menorah, but that will last far beyond uh, till the end of time. Uh, so the question is, wait a minute, what do you mean? When the Beis Hamikdash is destroyed, so that is the end of the service of the Kohanim, the Beis Hamikdash and the Temple Mishkan and so on. So okay, that's, what, that's why it ends. So all the service that they did comes to... It's terminated. But wait a minute. If it's terminated, that's the end of the menorah. So what does the Rebbe mean that your avoid of lighting the menorah will continue till the end of time, which means till the Mashiach comes? Uh, so there's a Ramban on this, Nachmanides, that says the following, that the Rebbe here is a remez, is an allusion to Hanukkah. You see? It was your descendants, Matasio and Kohen Gadol, and so on, you know, that uh, they will cause the Jews to light the menorah all the way to the Messianic era. And therefore, Aaron was tremendously lifted in terms of his spirits and so on, you see. So that seems to be an event which may disclose what it was really all about, what the real theme is in terms of Hanukkah and so on, you know. How do we understand this? You know, why? What is the meaning that it should last until the end of time? And so on. Why? <clears throat> and so on. In order to understand that, you need to understand a very important aspect of Judaism. It says in the Torah, yom echad." When God created the world in one day, the first day, so it says that, right, God said, let there be light, and there was morning, or I should say, there was evening and there was morning, yom echot, one day. It doesn't say the first day. It should have said the first day, right, which is an ordinal number. It's number based on order, first, second, third, fourth, and so on. Instead it says, yom echot, which means one day. Then for starting the second day, it says Yom Sheni, Yom Shlishi, the second day, third day, and so on, which is an ordinal normal, reflects order. 
You see. So the question is, why does it say, why doesn't it say, Yom Rishayim? Instead, why does it say Yom Echod? One day, we should have said the first day. So there are explanations. Rashi offers one and so on. Uh, and so on. Because Rashi says, essentially, on that day, Yom Echod really means not one day, but the day of one. Yom Shel Echod. The day of the one. Who's the one? God. Because he was the only existing consciousness on that day. The angels weren't created until the second day. That's what Rashi says. <clears throat> now, but there's perhaps another way to view this. Yom Echad is a very important concept. Why? <clears throat> the day of one means that day is a day that only God exists in that sense. No other living entity exists. But you know what that really means? It means this. Means on that day, if you lived or if you were with God for that day on the first day, even though God is creating many, many things, in the end you realize everything emanates from God. You see, so even though there's trillions of things, objects in the universe, because that's what he's doing, right? Really there's only one being called God because you would see the connection, how everything emanates from God. So theoretically, what, or technically really what it is, is, is only one thing exists, everything emanates from that, right? So therefore, Yom Echod means a day of one, because that's really what you see, the oneness of everything. That's why it says, Yom Echod, you see? And that was, uh, He all, let there be light, uh, that was, is what God is referring to, that the light was the light that everything emanates from the Rabbani Shalom. There is no multiplicity, plurality, or whatever, you see. But on the second day already, the Bansham already allowed that vision that there is only one to disappear. And all of a sudden, you would recognize what's called multiplicity. <clears throat> okay, so that's the first thing you have to know, that there is a vision, or there is a reality in which you could see that everything emanates from the Rabbani Shalom. Very important concept, you see. Now, when do we get to see that? Only on the first day of creation? No. So we have to look at the end of the Torah to understand when that vision, or that illumination, that everything is really one because everything emanates from God, even though there looks like many things, when will that happen? And the answer is, well, there's a posik at the end of the Torah in V'zoy Sabrocho where Moshe Rabbeinu is giving blessings out. And here's what he says to the tribe of Yosef. Bechor shoiroi hodoloi, the firstborn of his ox, beauty is his. And allegorically, he's referring to, Mo, to Yosef HaTzadik. The beauty of this ox, right? Beauty is his. Hodoloi, right? <coughs> Ooh, and Right? But the horns of this ox are not the horns of an ox or a bull. It's the horns of a re'aim. So even though it's an ox, but his horns are the horns of a re'aim, what about these horns? And with these horns, right, that this bull is going to gore the nations. Now obviously he's describing Yosef HaTzadik as an ox, I should say the tribe of Yosef and so on. 
So it doesn't literally mean ox, uh, you know, and so on. But this is a what's called an, a metaphor that tells us a profound secret. What is that? Uh, so let's take a look. Bechol Shoiroi, the firstborn of his ox. Who is that? That is the Mashiach. Specifically, the tribe of Yosef, the Mashiach ben Yosef. Hodeloi, he's beautiful to look at. You're not looking at an ox. You're looking at a magnificent creature. In what way? Because the horns of this ox is not the horns of a bull normally, which are what? They're short and they're very stout and they're very powerful because of the shoulders of this bull and so on, right? Uh, but they have the horns of the Re'em. Now, the Re'em was a mythical animal that we don't really know what it was, but it had magnificent-looking horns. You ever take a look at some horns of goat or deer, right, or moose? The, the symmetry and the way they fold on each other is magnificent to look at. You see? I mean, some of these animals have magnificent horns that are like, like two feet high off their head. <clears throat> so, so this ox, apparently, or bull, had these type of horns. You see? And what does it do with the horns? It'll go the nations. So what Moshe Rabbeinu is really saying is that the Mashiach ben Yosef will have these horns. Now, obviously, what does it mean? It doesn't mean he's going to have horns, obviously. <coughs> the only guy who thought that Jews have horns is Michelangelo when he made Moses the statue have horns, whatever. But in any case, what does that mean? Well, what the Torah is saying is something very, very significant, profound. And that is that, what are horns? Horns emanate from the head. Not only that, they're used as weapons. Uh, so what he's alluding to is that the horns of Mashiach ben Yosef, which protrudes from his head, right? What is that? What protrudes from a person's head? And the answer is chokhmah, wisdom. So what Moshe Rabbeinu is saying is that <clears throat> wisdom that protrudes from the head or the mind of the Mashiach, right, is magnificent to look at, you see. And with, these, with this chokhmah, he will go the nations. In other words, he's going to bring the gula by revealing an incredible wisdom. What is that wisdom? So, by the fact that it's beautiful to look at, what does that mean? What is beauty? What beauty is, right, is when you have many, many different fragments or ideas that integrate into one whole. For instance, you know, a classic, let's say, uh, music, you know, Beethoven, his symphonies. You know, if you look at a symphony, all it is is a bunch of notes. That's all. But the way they come together the melody, you know, called the, uh, the counterpoint, the harmony, the way they all blend. It's magnificent to listen. Or let's say beauty of art. What is beauty of art? A Rembrandt picture, right? How everything comes together as a whole, as one idea, one unit. That's beauty, you see. <clears throat> you see. And therefore, it's not only a beauty of art and a beauty of music, there's also a beauty of chokhmah, of wisdom. What is that? When you see how many different phenomena 
all come together as one idea. And science does that. That's beautiful. In fact, I once read, which is interesting, that one of the greatest proofs, if a theory is correct, is how elegant is it? How beautiful is it? Does it really come together as one idea where everything fits? And there's certain, many theories in, in, in uh, science that is beautiful. I mean, one of the classics is the electric magnetic theory of James Clerk Maxwell. You see, that really all radio, all frequencies, radio, all waves and so on, light and so on, is really the same. They only differ in the frequency, the amount of cycles per second. That's beautiful. Where he combined a tremendous amount of phenomena into one idea, and so on. Uh, so, uh, this is how the Mashiach ben Yosef is going to do his job. You see? Beautiful, in the sense that it's all beautifully, or rather, it's all integrated as one. But what is that? Well, that's the Eimechod. That's exactly what was the beginning of the Torah. When you see how everything is combined into one idea, that's beautiful, that's Hodah. That's an incredible, uh, you know, uh, uh, approach of wisdom. That is the weapons of the Bashir ben Yosef, and that's what he was gonna. Uh, he's gonna how he's gonna change the world into this. You see, Yemechod, the day of one. And by the way, Yemechod, since it's gonna be at the, in the Messianic era, is also called the Orishan, the first light, because that's really what it was, right? Or the Or Mashiach. Right? <clears throat> the messianic light. And that is the orhagonas, the concealed light. You see? But it will happen at that time. <clears throat> well, now that you understand this concept of the orishim, you see, the first light, this concept of Yemechod, you see, we can now understand something very important. When the Jews were at Matan Torah to accept the Torah, right? So what God wants is that they should, they should accept it with love, not be compelled. And that's what they did, basically. They accepted the, oral, the written law, and then they accepted the oral law, right? But there was another aspect that they have to accept, and that is the hidden Torah, the Oragonas, you see. The, the concept of the Yom Echod, that everything is not that, that there's many, a great deal of wisdom and there's God, no. Everything emanates from the Bershlam in a way which is incomprehensible to us. They should have accepted that. Now what is interesting is what the Bershlam does, you see. Adam right? What was his test? Well, his test was, Rashi brings it down, that the snake told him Right? Uh, that you can be like God. Why? Because God ate from the tree. That's what he did. That's what, that was the tempting, temptation. And that's how he became God. The tree is a power source of everything. Uh, you see, what Adam should have realized, this is not true. That everything emanates from God. Why did God give him that test? Because had he passed the test, he would have been Mashiach. And he then would have seen, right, not only that everything emanates from God, 
but that God is the only thing that exists. You see, uh, why? Because if he would have been the Mashiach, then that's what he would have understood, the concept of Yoy Mechod. See, it's measure for measure. Since you believe that the tree doesn't exist, I created the tree, God says. So therefore, you will now be Zoycha, you will be merit to understand that in its truth, which is the reality of the Yoy Mechod. He would have seen that. The day of one, the first day, he would have seen. You see? That's a Midah Keneged Midah, since you will be the Mashiach, right? And if, if you therefore believe in what the Mashiach is supposed to be propagate, right? If you believe that, then you will experience that. Well, guess what? Matan Torah was a time, right? That could have been Messianic. Who was Moshe Rabbeinu? Without really getting into it. Moshe Rabbeinu was really the Mashiach ben Yosef. Even though he was a Levi. Without getting into that. And so on, right? And had the Jews accepted Teresh Sav or a written Torah, Teresh Peh, the oral law, and if they would not have sinned at the golden calf, because how can you have an idol or a calf that represents God? And then they're saying, this is your God that took you out of Egypt? Excuse me. You see, if you believe everything emanates from God, how can you even have some type of facsimile, some representation of the Rabbani Shalom? Why were they tested? Because since Moshe Rabbeinu would have been the Mashiach and it would have been the Messianic era, then they would have been zoichet to the Yom Echod vision. Yom Echod. Which is what? Which is the third aspect of the Torah, the Or Hagonas. So they, they were actually subject to a test. <clears throat> Will they believe in the concept of Or Hagonas? Or Eneb Mavadoi? But they failed. <clears throat> Who was responsible for part of the failure? Aaron Akoyan. So what Aaron realized, and we begin to understand what Aaron's problem was, it's not only that they, he caused, in many ways, he contributed significantly to what? To the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, golden calf, Cheto Ego, right? <clears throat> but, hey, wait a minute. Moshe Rabbeinu would have been Mashiach. That would have been the redemption. So he realized that he destroyed an unbelievable messianic opportunity. That was his chalisha. That was his weakness. You see how he had a tremendous guilt complex. You see? It's not only that they did the golden calf, which he contributed to. It's that they destroyed the ability of Moshe Rabbeinu to be the Mashiach ben Yosef. Now we begin to understand what Aaron really felt. Uh, so what the Rabbi said is, don't worry, I will forgive you. How? Because he said, your descendant, who we now know, Ramban, this is Hanukkah, we now begin to understand what Hanukkah is. What I will do is give the Jews another chance to accept the all Hagonas, the concealed light, Yom Echod, the day of one. <clears throat> right. I'm going to create a historical event where your descendants will cause the Jews to accept that. And therefore they will undo the pagam, the defect of not accepting it by the sin of the golden calf. That's what the Bansha meant, that the Beis HaMikdash will be destroyed. And as a result of that, right, since destroyed, 
then all the carbonates will be gone. But you're lighting the menorah, and that's how it's going to manifest, which we will see, right? You will actually cause the Jews to re-accept the Oragonas. That belief system that everything emanates from God, there is no multiplicity really at the bottommost level of Chochmah, you see. And your descendants will cause the Jews to do that. And that will be a kapora and a tikkun, a rectification of the sin of the golden calf. So we now understand something very important. The setup, that Hanukkah the, or the battle with the Greeks is really a setup. Now, Adedurbanisham set them up. In other words, we think it's a historical event, which it is. But what it really is, is a setup to allow the Jews a second chance, you see, to, over, to overcome or to repair the damage that they did by not accepting the Yem Echod, the Or Hagonas, the, right? The, the uh, concealed light. So what did Hashem do? So we know in the beginning of Bratius, there are four empires that the Jews have to go through. It's really five. Egypt is the first. But after Egypt, if they don't repair the damage, whatever, without getting into that, uh, then they have to go through four empires. Okay, there's Babylon, there's Persia, right? There's Greece and there's Rome. And we are considered to be in the Roman Empire because what took over Rome is Christianity and then Western civilization. So we are considered to still be in the empire of Rome, the fourth empire. In any case... So it says by Greece. So it says Toyu and the earth was Toyu, right? Which means unformed. Voyu is void, means empty. Choishech, there was darkness on the face of the deep. What what does darkness mean? Yeah, on the face of the deep, it's like a the whole world was covered with water, and there's no light because the sun wasn't created yet, right? And there's tremendous darkness. What kind of darkness is that? It's not a darkness which is the absence of light. Oh, you see. Because then it says, let there be light. Now we know that wasn't a light which is the light that we could see by. That light was Chochmah of Yom Echad. God said, let the fact that I am the only one and therefore everything emanates from me, let that become visible or known, you see, that's the Yom Echod, you see, and that's the all. So if that's the all, then what's the Choshech? What's the darkness? The opposite, the alternative reality, belief, is what? Uh, that the world is multiplicity. That it's not just one, right? But there are many, many things. So it comes out that Choshech represents which kingdom? It represents Greece. Because that's what Greece believed, that the world is not spiritual. We're not talking about a metaphysical realm. We're talking about a physical realm, science, and so on. And therefore, the world is physical. It's based on scientific principles, right? And that's what Greek, uh, be- the Greeks believed in. They're the forerunner of the modern thinking age, and so on. <clears throat> you see, so this is what the Greeks believed in. So Bonsham said, I'm going to choose Greece to take over the world, especially to take over Judea with their belief system. 
that the essential nature of the Bria of creation is multiplicity and physical, not spiritual and one. So we see, therefore, the concept of darkness is Greece, where they view an alternative reality, you see, and they're called Choshech, darkness, as opposed to the Or, right, which is the Yom Echod, the day of one, right, the concealed light. Uh, so what does the Bersham do? Therefore, we now begin to see that Greece was preordained to happen. Why? Because what the Bersham was going to do is pit Greece, the wisdom of Greece, or I should say the belief system of Greece, against the belief system of the Jews. Now, would they accept the belief system of Greece, Hellenism, or would they fight them, self-sacrifice, to reject that system and believe only in God as the only one, right, that exists, and so on. That's what we begin to see, right, what happened. So therefore, the Rebbeinu allows, and now we begin to understand how the Rebbeinu controls the entire world. He allows a young guy, Alexander the Great, to conquer the entire world. You see? For what reason? To bring this belief system, the concept of that there, everything has an internal structure, you see? And that is what generates everything. <clears throat> Science is the, is the knowledge of basic principles. And everything can be reduced to those principles. So there is a concept of reduction. In a certain way, that is Yem Echad. But it's physical, you see. Whereas we believe there's only one thing, but it's spiritual. The origin is spiritual, not physical. But you see what the Greeks did. They also believed in the concept of oneness, Yem Echad. That Yom Echod is physical. It's science. You see, like, what makes people sick? Well, it's one thing. It's called pathogens. And there are many kinds of pathogens. There's bacteria, there's viruses, fungi, and so on. You see? Uh, so they also believe in oneness, which is interesting. And that's why they're so attractive. Because they don't believe in a myriad of ideas and phenomena. They believe in reduction of phenomena to one or two or three ideas. That's what Judaism believes. The difference is Judaism says that the reduction takes place in the spiritual universe, takes place by God, you see, where everything emanates from God. Whereas Greece, with science and philosophy and so on, believes that uh, there could be a reduction, but it's all physical, you see. So what the Rebbe did is he allowed Alexander to conquer the entire world, you see, uh, in order to do what? Hellenize the world, right, with that philosophy. So there was an advancement, you should know. The Greeks were tremendously advanced. Why? Because until then, everybody believed that there are thousands and millions of different phenomena. Each one is separate. The Greeks reduced it to one idea called the scientific principles, you see. So they were way ahead of their time, but they insisted that it's all physical and not spiritual. So after Alexander Hellenized the world, conquered the whole world, you see, so he did advance the world. The problem was, Hellenism is physical, you see. So Alexander, by the way, the rabbi, not the rabbi, the teacher of Alexander is Aristotle, 
who's obviously one of the greatest thinkers of all time, uh, and so on, you know, <clears throat> who Aristotle was, and so on. But in any case, then Alexander dies, because his purpose was over. And there are four generals that took over. Like I said, the one who took over the whole concept of what? <clears throat> of uh, Judea was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he tried to Hellenize Judaism. That's what he wanted to do. He didn't want to kill them. We're not talking about slaughter, you see. He wants to change and make them more civilized as far as he's concerned, you see. But if what happened, the Jews, Matisio, Kohen Gadol, he fought them with the Hashmonoim, his sons, and so on. And they battled. In other words, they rejected. Imagine 10,000 soldiers fighting over 125,000 battle-hardened warriors. So that battle is where they rejected what? They rejected the knowledge base or the belief system of the Greeks. So it's not the battle in and of itself, even though that was miraculous. What the real fight was over, you see, is we reject your belief system. That's really the incredible theme, you see, of Hanukkah, is to reject and so on. And they accepted their belief system of the Oragonas. Uh, you see, so what that was, it was a tremendous tikkun, rectification of the original Chet Egel, you see, where they failed to understand it and accept it. And now they accepted it, right? And they accepted their Yemechod, their Orishim. Very, very interesting. We now understand the real historical event. The battle is only the, what's called the Hechitimsa, the way that they demonstrated their belief in the concept of the Or Hagonus. You see? The messianic light. Now, what's interesting about this? Jews don't know what they did. They fought a battle. They rejected the philosophy of Greece. And that's it. They don't know what they really did spiritually. So what did God do? He sent them a telegram. Now, we know there are no telegrams around, uh, but if you think about it, if you go into the Mishkan or the Beis Hamikdash, what instrument in the Beis Hamikdash represents this Chochmah of Yom Echod, you see, of the Kani Re'im? The answer is the Menorah, because they light seven lights, which represents the seven Chochmahs, or whatever, or the seven spheres, and so on, which represents the total, the totality of reality. Uh, that nair represents, you see, the Orishim, that it really comes from one uh, base and spreads, you see, and that's the concept of the Oragonas. One idea, which is God, is the base, and the seven candelabra, you know, projections, those are the Chochmah of the spheres. See, uh, so what did Bansham do? He sent him a telegram. What he did is he caused a miracle to occur in the very device or instrument that represents the Orhagonus. So when the Jews saw that there was a miracle that we were able to relight, that means we did a tikkun, a rectification on the sin of the golden calf, which was a pagam, a defect in the acceptance of the Orishan, the Omishiach. You see, it was the very instrument that exemplifies 
that uh, uh, messianic light. Uh, that's why the manure is chosen. So when they recognize that, then they recognize the relighting of the menorah that went from one day to seven. You see? They realized that they had accomplished a new significant spiritual achievement, which had not happened until the Greeks. You see? So once that happened, then the rabbi said, this has to become a new holiday because it's the rectification of a new spiritual light that the Jews did not do in the, by the sin of the golden calf. You see, that's why they made Hanukkah into a holiday, because they understood the significance by the menorah itself. You see, it's, even though the battle was a miracle, but the real theme was the miracle of the candles from one day to eight days to tell the Jewish people that you have relit the menorah, which is the symbol of the Orishan. The messianic light. Yemechad. You see? That's really, we now understand uh, what that was. And what's amazing of all that, right, is that this was a historical setup. The Bershom actually moved world history to get the Jews to do what? To rectify the defect that they made in creation by not accepting the concept of a messianic light or the concept that that there is nothing but God and everything, you see. It's amazing how the Bansham does that. You know, they allows Greece to conquer the entire world just so that the Jews can be set up or have an opportunity to rectify the entire defect. You know, when you really think about that. <clears throat> and then when you really look at it, which is really very interesting, you see, what is that? <clears throat> Why did the Jews win the battle? Because if you walked over to a Greek general and say, you know, if you have 10,000 people that fight 125,000 battle-hardened warriors or soldiers or whatever, who do you think is going to win? Through Teva, naturally. So of course he said, what are you, there's no contest here. Why? Because he believes in physical principles. Well, the many, especially if they're experienced, of course they're going to win. Um, but what were the Jews doing in that war? They were rejecting the philosophy of Greece. That battle or the victory of battle has nothing to do with what seemingly should be obvious. That it's up to God who is victorious. So even if you had 10,000 people, you will win. You see? So therefore, me the connected me, the measure for measure. Since you now believe that I determine the victory, God says, and not nature or the the, the common military principles, I determine. Therefore, they won to exemplify, to illustrate that uh, belief concept. So they really deserve to win. Uh, second idea, if you walk over to a Greek scientist and said to him, well, listen, we have one day's worth of oil. What do you think? We need eight days to come with new oil from the Galil, right? You think we should do it? You think it can burn eight days? He says, of course not. It's, not, it's combustible, but it's only got one day's worth of oil. That's it. Of course, it's not going to burn more than one day. So the Bonshim says, wait a minute. I'm the one who decides that oil burns in the first place. The whole con concept of combustibility is only because I decided to give it that phenomenon. You see? Uh, and that's what the Jews believed. So since they believe that God determines how long it burns, right? Not nature or science. Guess what? 
One day burnt into eight days. <clears throat> and there's a famous story of Chanir ben Doisa, where his daughter came over to him and said, you know, we don't have any, we have, uh, uh, we don't have any oil for Shabbos. So Chanir ben Doisa said, well, okay, if you don't have oil, use vinegar. So his daughter told him, what do you mean vinegar? Vinegar doesn't burn. It's not combustible. Right? So Chanir ben Doisa says, which is a profound understanding, well, who decided that vinegar burns? It's not automatic. Uh, God decided to invest in the property of oil to burn. Well, guess what? That's what we believe. So he can make anything burn, even if it's not combustible. And guess what? She lit with vinegar, and it burnt the whole Shabbos. See, that's the classic, where Rabbi ben was rewarded for his belief. Ah, uh, you see. And therefore, as a result of that, the oil burnt, right, for, seven, for uh, another seven days, or a total of eight, eight days, because that's really what they testify to. <clears throat> so we wonder, wait a minute, if Hanukkah is a time that they corrected, they repaired the error of the, what, Chet all right, then why didn't Mashiach come? And the truth is, he should have come. And the answer to that is because to bring the Mashiach at that time, you needed merit. It wasn't the final time that he must come, called Be'itoi, right? It was Achishena, which means that if you deserve it, he can come. Well, guess what? Even though the Jews did that, they had to still deserve it, you see. What, so what went wrong? And the answer is because what the Jews did, right, in order to deserve it, the only one who can rule over the Jewish people is a descendant of Yehuda. That the rod, scepter, will not depart from Yehuda. Uh, so they should have installed a new king, a descendant of Yehuda, or actually David. But they didn't. The Chashmanoim continued to rule. But wait a minute, the Chashmanoim are Kohanim. It is not their job to rule. So therefore they did not leave the throne. And because of that, there was the, the merit that would have brought the Mashiach never happened. And by the way, of all the holidays, the only holiday that is not represented by a Gemara, a tractate, a Masechta, is Hanukkah. There is no Masechta Hanukkah. So Hanukkah's laws are spread out throughout the Talmud. And the question is why? Because Rebbe, who was from the house of David, right, was very angry because they could have brought Mashiach, you see. And he was very angry that they didn't. So he did not want to glorify the Chashmanoim by writing a Masechta that has the laws of Hanukkah. Interesting. I mean, not because he was seeking revenge. He said, I don't want to glorify them because they don't deserve to have a Masechta dedicated to their holiday. Which is interesting. <clears throat> and not only that, what happened was because the Jews did not, or the Chashmanoim, which were Kohanim, because they did not give up the Malucha, right? So therefore, there were three wars that ensued afterwards. God allowed Rome, there were, it's called the Punic War, between Rome and Carthage. And Carthage and Rome were the world powers. And Carthage and Rome, Carthage, I think is in North Tunisia. It's in Tunisia. So, they fought it out who would be the dominant force in the world. So the Punic Wars, they're called the Punic Wars, three of them, 
and Rome won the Third War and they wiped out Carthage. They destroyed the whole civilization. Why? Because Rome that was destined to destroy the base of Migdash, you see, got its merit because of the sin of the Hashmanoim. Uh-huh, you see. And in the end, Rabbanisham destroyed or he had killed every one of the Hashmanoim. And the last one was a girl, Miriam, if I remember her name correctly, whom Hadrian wanted to marry her because he needed a claim, a legitimate claim to the kingdom because he was the son of slaves, Edomian slaves, and so on. So he wanted to marry this Miriam, and Miriam said, no way. So she went to the top of a building, threw herself off, committed suicide, you see. And to, in order to make sure that people would still think that, well, she's still around, he took her body and put it in honey. He preserved her in honey. It's amazing. That's, that's what Herod uh, did. I always think maybe that's why a husband will call his wife honey. Maybe that was the origin. Anyway, uh, but that's interesting. What God did is he destroyed every last one of the Hashmanoim because they should not have taken over. You know, it's funny. Where do we see this also? Well, what's interesting is there's a dreidel. We play dreidel. And a dreidel has four sides, right? And it has four letters. Nun Gimel Heishin. That stands for Nes Godel Hoyosham. Right? A great miracle occurred there. What's interesting is the gematria of Nun Gimel Heishin, or Nes Godel Hoyosham, right? Nun Gimel Heishin is gematria Mashiach. Because that's really what it's about. Will we bring back the Orishan or not? You see, what's interesting is somebody once asked me, and it was really actually, said, wait a minute, that's in America. But in Israel we have Nun Gimel Heipei, Nesgod Lahoyapoi, that there was a great miracle that occurred here. You see, so that doesn't add up to Mashiach. It was a good question, you know. So the Rabban Shalom helped me out. So for some reason, instantly I knew, wait a minute, what's the gematria? It's not 358. Nun Gimel Heipei, the gematria, uh, is uh, uh, 138. I said, that's gematria Tzemach, the offspring. And we say that, it's Tzemach Dovid, the offspring of David, which is the Mashiach. So even Nun Gimel Heipei is also gematria Tzemach, which is the name of the Mashiach, which is very interesting. Uh, also, what's interesting is the word Chashmenoim, which refers to the people who obviously did the battle and so on, the Rem is in Chashmenoim. If you look at the letters, it spells Shemen, Shemen Echod, one vial of oil, Chesyoim, eight days. That's very interesting. The word Chashmenoim spells out in the letters, the Nodorican, Shemen Echod, one oil, one vial of oil, Chesyoim, Eight days. So the word Chashmanoim itself is Merames, alludes to what the Chashmanoim will do. And also the word Or in the Torah is the 25th letter and the, of course the 25th um, a day of Kislev is Hanukkah. <coughs> you see. So <coughs> these are very important ideas. We now understand that there are, there are different aspects of the Torah. There's the written law, the oral law, and then, there's the, and, the, and then there's the Or Hagonus, which says what? Yom Echod, 
right? The Kani Ra'im. And this is the messianic light, you see? Because in essence, what exactly is the essential idea of the messianic light? That everything emanates from God. And that is how the Mashiach will turn over. That's how he will battle the entire, uh, you know, uh, false beliefs of mankind. And that's really what Hanukkah is. So when you light Hanukkah lights, what you're really declaring is your belief that that God runs the world completely. And not only that, He is the world completely. That's really what you're doing. So when you learn Hanukkah lights, you should look at the lights. And by the way, that's why, since those lights represent the concept of the messianic light, that's why you cannot use them. They're only there to look at and understand this concept. They're not there to use. That's why the Allah is not to use the Hanukkah lights and so on. You see? Um, but the idea is when to look at the Hanukkah lights, you should look at them when you burn them and stare at them. Uh, it would be great if you could do that for a half hour, you know, and, and realize that this is really what happened over 2,000 years ago that the Jews gave up their lives for the belief that the world is spiritual. Not only is the root of the world spiritual, but the world can be reduced, all of it, the physical and the spiritual, to the whole concept that everything emanates from God. And this is the, the concept of, of Hanukkah. So maybe, maybe this Hanukkah Mashiach will come. It's got to come sometime, right? So maybe he will come in the holiday that commemorates his light, his theme, that God is in charge where everything emanates from God himself. Thank you.